Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with a, uh, with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given us to gather together for worship today. Uh, Lord, we thank you for what we've already been able to do on this church campus. And uh, Lord, we pray that as we uh, begin looking at your word this morning, um, at this time, that your name will be honored and held high. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you will use this time uh, just to challenge us and to convict us. And uh, Lord, we pray that when we leave this place, uh, that we will just be more and more like Christ as a result of just what we do in this building today. And uh, so be with us during this time, and all these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, isn't it a great day to gather for worship today? Even if uh, it was a little bit rainy outside on your way in, uh, it's still a great day to gather for worship. And, uh, you know, there was a time uh, a long time ago when people gathered uh, to worship on Saturdays. And you guys know this. In the Old Testament, uh, especially in the Ten Commandments, you see that uh, people were supposed to keep the Sabbath holy. And, uh, and as you know, the Sabbath is Saturday. And, uh, and so for thousands of years, people gathered on Saturdays uh, to study God's Word. And, uh, but then about 2,000 years ago, everything changed, right? Jesus came into the world, lived a perfect life, died in our place, rose from the grave, and he rose on a Sunday. And as a result of that, the early church decided, hey, let's start meeting on Sundays so that we've got just a regular weekly reminder of what Jesus has already accomplished for us. And uh, so that, they've kept the tradition alive ever since then. Here we are still doing it today. So the very fact that you're here today on a Sunday instead of a, sa- instead of a Saturday should get you excited uh, because what that communicates, it communicates that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, it communicates that our sins have been paid for in full, and it communicates that if we will confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that that means that we get to spend eternity with Him one day in heaven. And uh, so that should always just kind of be right there in the front of our minds every single week when we gather for worship. So I hope that, uh, hope that today when I ask, is today a great day to gather for worship? I hope that you agree with me that it is because what that means is that our sins have been paid for in full and Jesus Christ is alive just by the very fact that we're meeting today on a Sunday. But before we begin uh, this morning, let me just quickly introduce myself. Uh, I'm not, since I'm not the normal teaching pastor, and I know that we have a few uh, guests with us today, let me just quickly introduce myself. My name is Reed, and I'm the Minister of Education and Students here at Northside. Uh, my family has been here for about three years now, and I got to share this with the first service. I'll share it with y'all. It was three years ago this month that we got to come and uh, meet you guys for the very first time, and uh, it has been just a fantastic time of being able to, to serve as one of the pastors at this church. Uh, I know that me and Sarah are just so proud to call Northside our church home. And so thank you guys for everything um, that y'all have meant to us and just for allowing us all the opportunities that we have on a regular basis uh, to serve Christ alongside of you. It's definitely uh, been a fantastic three years. Um, Pastor Scott is out of town uh, this morning. He's on a family vacation. They're doing uh, some big family get-together out in Missouri. And uh, he's going to be continuing with his series on Matthew uh, next week. Uh, today we're going to be doing a, a short detour over to the book of Acts. Uh, I, was, I was considering doing uh, just an, an extension on his series. I thought about just picking up where he left off. Uh, but I flipped ahead to see what that passage would be. And it was all about gouging your eyes out and cutting your hands off if you struggle with lust. And uh, so I decided that I'm just going to let him handle that one. So... Um, Scott was pretty sneaky. He didn't tell me about that when he asked if I wanted to preach today. So good thing I looked ahead, right? Uh, But no, all joking aside, uh, 
in all seriousness, my, my goal today is just to, to help every single one of us in this room just understand some very important doctrine, some very important truth. And we're going to do this today by just asking one simple question, and that is, who is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? So if you have your Bible with you, let me get you, uh, go ahead and get you to open up to the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be uh, spending a little bit of time in Acts chapter 3, a little bit of time in Acts chapter 4. Um, if you're like me and prefer to use your iPhone or your iPad, uh, go ahead and turn that on. I promise that uh, you, are, you are free to do that in this church. Uh, go ahead and set your translation over to the NIV. That way you're tracking along with me. It'll be very easy to follow along. Uh, but isn't technology great? Just to know that anywhere you go now, as long as you have your iPhone with you, like you've got multiple copies of God's Word right there at your fingers. And uh, I just think that that's one of the neatest things in the world, that we have that ability now. Um, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you today, or if you don't have a smartphone with the Bible app, just go ahead and grab the Pew Bible that's right in front of you. Uh, we're going to start off today on page 772. That's where we'll begin. I'm going to read our whole passage first. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll, we'll jump in and start talking about it. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. All right, so here we are. We've got Peter and John heading on up to the temple getting ready to pray, and on their way, they pass by this beggar, which according to our passage is described as being lame from birth. Uh, now, let me go ahead and just kind of clarify what that means for everybody in the room, because in today's culture, we use the word lame slightly different, like if we're honest, right? Like when we communicate that somebody is lame, we're saying that they're not cool, right? We say, man, that person is so lame. Like Keith Patterson works in our student ministry, and he hears this all the time. <laughs> I'll just play it, Keith. So, but, so in this passage, though, when they're using the word lame, saying that he's lame from birth, they're not talking about him being uncool. They're talking about him having some sort of physical deformity that has prevented him from being able to engage the culture, being able to participate uh, in just normal society, and, uh, and being able to provide for himself. And so that's what's happening in this passage. And his friends, thankfully he's got some friends who care enough about him, and his friends carry him to an area of the town where there is just plenty of foot traffic, where there's just plenty of people around so that he has plenty of opportunities to ask for money for food, for water, for clothing, whatever it is that he needs, he has the opportunity to, to, to ask for that just because of where they've placed him. So they've put him at this gate uh, at, right there next to the temple called uh, Beautiful. And that's exactly where we're at in this passage when Peter and John walk by. Look again at verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
walk. All right, so here we are. This beggar is asking for money, and Peter and John walk by, and instead of just giving them, or instead of giving him exactly what he's asked for, they actually decide to do something a little different. They decide to heal him. Now, if we're honest, uh, it's a little strange for us to read this and be able to relate to it. It's a little strange for us to read this and kind of understand what's going on in this text because we don't really see this happening anymore. Uh, It's difficult for us to to understand because now when somebody gets sick, now when somebody is in need of healing, what do they do? They go to the doctor, right? Like that's kind of our course of action now. Uh, But at this time in history, there were certain spiritual gifts that people had Um, and healing was one of those gifts. Now, personally, uh, I I don't believe that every spiritual gift has continued on from the time of the apostles until now. I think that some of those gifts were used at a a certain time for a a certain purpose, and I think those purposes were fulfilled, and I don't think necessarily we see all of those gifts being used anymore. That's just my personal opinion based on my interpretation of some important passages. Um, Now, if if you're sick, you don't go and see your local pastor and ask for miraculous healing, right? And why is that? It's because... We can't heal you. I'd be glad to pray for you, and I'll be glad to drive you to the hospital if you need a ride, um, but I don't have the gift of healing, and neither does anybody else on our staff, okay? So if you're in need of medical attention, go to the doctor, right? Like, that's our course of action. Uh, But that's another conversation for another day. If you want to find me later and and debate spiritual gifts with me, I'm more than glad to do that. Elaine Hollis has already found me after the first service, and she she came after me. So, um, listen, I know that everybody's got different opinions on that, and that's fine. But just know this. At this point in history, the gift of healing was still being used. And how do we know that? Because we just read about it, right? So if we believe that God's word is completely true, so without error, and we just read about it, then we can trust what it says, even if we don't fully understand it, even if we can't quite relate to it, we can still trust what it says. All right, so look at what happens next. Uh, Verse seven, taking him by the right hand, he helps him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. All right, so at the beginning of my time today, I told you guys that I wanted to to help us understand some important doctrine and that we were going to do that by asking a simple question of who is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And as a result of everything that we've looked at, we're going to now be able to kind of jump into that. Everything we've looked at is kind of foundational for what we're going to be discussing now. So here we go. We're jumping right in at verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, the same man that we just read about being healed, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? In other words, what he's saying is, we didn't do this. It's not by our own power that we did this. It is the power of Jesus Christ that is in us that has made this man walk. Keep reading. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, 
But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. So at this point, Peter just throws it out there. Listen, the reason why this guy is healed is because of Jesus Christ and you killed him. And so there's your first point right there. If you got your hand out, you can go ahead and open it up. Uh, we got some fill-in-the-blanks to help you kind of follow along with our sermon today. And this is your first point. We're asking the question of who is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And we see right here, uh, at right off the bat in this passage, that Peter and John place the responsibility of the death of Jesus Christ on the regular people. You killed the author of life. All right, now chapter 3 continues. Peter and John, uh, they, they continue talking with everybody that's around them at this point. And it's thousands of people, okay? So this place is packed. And they're talking with all these people and just explaining to them, sharing the gospel with them, quoting passages from the Old Testament, encouraging them to repent, encouraging them to put their faith in Christ. Uh, I'm just going to give you just a quick, uh, the quick summary because we've got to jump over to Acts chapter 4 for the sake of our time. You can read the rest of Acts 3 when you get home today. But go ahead and join me real quick in Acts chapter 4 verses 1 through 2. Let's start there. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. So they're still outside speaking to all these people, and they came to them. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. All right, so at this point, Peter and John have now gotten the attention of some very important people. There are uh, religious leaders. There are kind of people who kind of are playing multiple roles. But one of the groups in particular is a group known as the Sadducees. And uh, as you guys are, are well aware, uh, the Sadducees did not believe that the resurrection was possible. And so, of course, they're going to be very irritated that not only are they causing this commotion outside next to the temple, uh, but they're also out there telling people that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And they don't believe that. They don't believe that the resurrection is possible. They don't teach it. They don't believe it. And it irritates them when people say it. So here they are. They're upset. And look at what happens next. Verse 3. They seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. All right, so the plot has thickened at this point, right? Peter and John have been outside sharing the gospel, talking with all these people about uh, what, you know, what has taken place in the life of Jesus. And, you know, they've healed this man, and now they've been arrested. And let me just go ahead and tell you, um, the people that they're getting ready to stand in front of are not necessarily the friendliest people. They're getting ready to stand in front of this group called the Sanhedrin, and this group has the authority to kill you. Uh, it's a pretty serious situation. These are some very important people. They've done it before, and they'll do it again. And Peter and John know this. Peter and John know, oh, wow, we've now been arrested, and we're about to stand in front of this very important group. So since it was late in the evening, they didn't go ahead and stand in front of these people right now. They said that they put them in jail and that they were going to address it the next day. So they had all night to think about this. It's not like they just you know, laid on their, on their bed in the jail cell and thought, oh, man, I'm going to get a great night of sleep tonight. No, they probably stayed up all night trying to figure out what it is they're going to say. They probably stayed up all night worrying about the fact that, hey, this might be their last night alive. But they decided, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to come out and just boldly proclaim the truth. And whatever they do to us, they do to us. But let's stay true to what it is that we believe. 
So here we go. And by the way, let me, let me just time us out real quick and, and, and just point you guys to verse 4. Uh, it says right there, But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. I don't want to accidentally just skim right over that passage. Guys, let's, let's pay attention to that for one second. That is such an important passage for us today. Um, it is true 2,000 years ago, and it is true still today. When God's word is preached faithfully, people put their faith in Christ. Amen? Like, that is something that we need to be reminded of. So in case you're ever wondering, like, why do we still get together? Why do we do what we do? It's because through the proclamation of God's word, people put their faith in Christ. And we see it in this situation right here. And it was a lot of people. It says that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. And that's only counting the the men. That's not counting the women or the children. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Referring to this miraculous act of healing this this crippled man. So by what power or what name did you do this? So they're asking. And so obviously Peter and John have had all night to think about this. Peter and John have had all night to prepare their answer. They knew this is serious. They better get it right the first time because they might not get a second chance. And look at what Peter's response is. Then Peter, this is verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. What a response. Standing right there in this crucial moment, they didn't back down. He absolutely just threw it at them. And notice here, he's now held another group of people responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And this is your second point. Peter and John placed the responsibility of the death of Jesus Christ on the leaders. Look again at verse 10. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. You did it. All right, so we now have two different groups of people being held responsible for the death of Christ. We got the regular people, and now we got the leaders. But it doesn't end here. We're going we're gonna to keep reading. But, uh, but before we do, let me just point out this, this obvious fact, okay? If you're part of the Sanhedrin, especially if you're in this group known as the Sadducees, you're going to be a little irritated uh, that Peter and John have just responded the way that they have, okay? Not only has Peter and John called you murderers, uh, but now they're even throwing it in your face that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, even though you don't believe it. Look, Peter's not stupid. He knows this, and he says it anyway. Verse 10, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. So, hey, look, Sadducees, even if you don't believe it, God did it. So what happens next? Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. 
But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. All right, so at this point, Peter and John are kind of kicked out of the courtroom. They're like, hey, we've got to talk amongst ourselves real quick. We've got a problem. This guy has been healed. And now there's thousands of people, thousands, like 5,000 men and women and children, thousands of people who have now, like, believed this. They're now following the same, uh, the same teaching now of Peter and John. We've got a problem on our hands. What are we going to do? Well, they do the only thing they can do, and that's threaten them, right? So here we go, verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So at this point, they're commanded, they're threatened, they're told, this is what you better do. And Peter and John immediately respond. They're like, do what you got to do to us. If you got to kill us, kill us. But just know that if you keep us alive, we're going to continue talking about this because we know it's true. You can't silence us unless you kill us. And that's kind of where they're at right here. So after this encounter with the Sanhedrin court, they're finally released. And immediately after being released, they go and meet up with some other believers. And, uh, and, that's, uh, and that's where we're at right now in our story, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. It's a pretty serious prayer. And uh, let's, let's break this thing down together. Let's kind of look at this. Verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And they began by saying, Sovereign Lord. And guys, if we can just stop right there. If we can just kind of pause for a moment and just reflect on that. Isn't this just an amazing truth that the God that we worship is sovereign? The fact that he is absolutely in control of all things should just like blow your mind. Whether it's good or whether it's bad, God is in control of all things. 100% completely sovereign. We see this in the story of Job. If you've never read the story of Job, you need to do this when you get home. I promise you it is well worth your time, especially those first few chapters, because what you're going to see is that God has power over everything, even evil. God is sovereign even over Satan. Satan has to stand before God and get permission to do anything to Job. Pretty, pretty serious. And by the way, let me go ahead and just give you one more piece of information about the story of Job. 
Uh, when you're reading chapter 1, uh, you're going to notice when you get to verse 8 that it's not Satan who initiated the challenge. It's God who initiated the challenge. And if you don't believe me, look it up. Uh, Job chapter 1, verse 8. God asks Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That's how sovereign he is. All right, so here we are in today's passage. And these believers are starting their prayer off by affirming God's sovereignty. They acknowledge this important truth, and now they're going to continue on with their prayer. And let's take a look at this. So verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Did you catch that? Did you just see what we just read Verse 28, they did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. Point number three, Peter and John placed the responsibility of the death of Jesus Christ on God. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now I do want to take note Uh, of something right here, and it's this. When Peter and John uh, bring God into the picture, it is not done with frustration or anger. Okay, that's not the case when they were talking to the regular people and when they were talking to the leaders. Uh, When they're talking to the regular people and the leaders, you could tell that there's just frustration in their voice, whom you crucified or whom you killed, right? But when they get to the point where they bring God into the story right here in this prayer, they they tie this whole situation to his sovereignty and they're praising his name for it. They're praising his name for being in complete control of the entire situation. They're acknowledging that God is sovereign over all things, even the greatest sin of all time, which was the murder of a truly innocent man who had lived his life in complete obedience to God. So I know what some of you are thinking right now. I'm not stupid, right? I know. I know that some of you are sitting there thinking to yourself, how is this possible? How is it possible that mankind can be held responsible and God can be held responsible at the exact same time? These things, don't, these things don't work well together. These things are illogical. This doesn't make sense. This argument is flawed. And if that's you, let, let me just ask you a few questions. Is God one or is God three? It's a good question. We don't worship multiple gods, do we? No. We worship one God, but he's three persons, three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So let me ask you again, is God one or is God three? Well, the answer is both, okay? Is Jesus a man or is he God? Another good question that seems to have kind of just some some, some weirdness to it right up front. sounds contradictory. Now, I'm just going to guess that nobody in this room would deny 
that Jesus Christ was a man, right? Like even atheist historians will agree that a man named Jesus was born, lived, and died on the Roman cross about 2,000 years ago. Uh, there's no denying that. I mean, even our, even our calendar system um, reflects that. Well, when we write 2014 and it ends with an A-D, that's a Latin phrase, which means the year of our Lord. So even our culture and our society still recognize that a man named Jesus lived about 2,000 years ago and caused time to even be dated differently, right? So the only difference between us and them is that we would affirm that we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and they don't. That's the difference between us and them. But we see in Scripture uh, that, that it is clear that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man, 200%, right? And we affirm that. Two natures, one person. So let me ask you again, is Jesus Christ fully God or is he fully man? And the answer is both. Okay, here's another one for you that sounds to, to have some, some tension in it. Was Scripture written by men or was it written by God? Like we know uh, that, that men actually picked up the pen and paper and wrote these letters, right? I, Paul, write to you, Timothy. Like, we know who wrote most of these letters, but we also see in Scripture that they wrote what they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask again, who wrote Scripture? Was it God or was it man? And the answer, and you guys are already catching on, it's both. So here we get to this one. Is God completely sovereign over all things? Or is mankind responsible for their actions? And as we've seen today, just by looking at just two chapters of Scripture, we see that the answer is both. And that's actually the next point in your handout. Number four, God is completely sovereign over all things. But we are still responsible for our actions. For whatever reason, people don't have a problem affirming that God is one and God is three. They don't have a problem affirming that Jesus is fully God and fully man. They don't have a problem affirming that Scripture was written by God and written by man. But when it comes to this issue, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, everybody freaks out, chooses sides, fights with one another, uh, when all along the answer is both. But finally, there's one more truth that we have to affirm today, and it's this. This is number five. Ultimately, each one of us is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ because of our sin. But forgiveness is available to everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. Let's make no mistake about it, okay? Even though we were not there 2,000 years ago when Jesus was handed over to the authorities to be killed, we would be fools to think that we, were not, that we were not on his mind when he was being nailed to the cross. Scripture clearly affirms that Jesus Christ came to bring life to every single person who was willing to confess him as Lord and Savior. And Scripture clearly affirms that he's the only one that can do that. Scripture clearly affirms that salvation is found in no one else. We just saw that in our passage today. Acts chapter 4 verse 12, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So even though we're living 2,000 years after Jesus Christ walked on earth, salvation is still available to every single person if they're willing to just call on the name of Jesus is that not something we're celebrating right there? Amen, right? So uh, what does this mean for us today, though? Let me, just, let me just ask you, how do we apply this to our lives? If you're a believer in the room, 
If you've already called on the name of Jesus, okay, like according to our passage, then let, let me speak to you just for one moment. Let today's message just be an encouragement to you. Just let it be an encouragement that you serve a huge, huge God that is in complete control of all things. No matter how bad your situation is, I can promise you that it's not as bad as what Jesus Christ went through 2,000 years ago. And if God was in complete control of that, then you can have confidence that God is in complete control of whatever's going on in your life too. But even still, this does not mean that you get a free ride. You're still responsible for your actions. Going back to the story of Job for a minute, uh, God allowed some terrible, terrible things to happen to Job and his family. He lost everything. The scripture explains that even still, he never charged God with any wrongdoing. And he lost it all just like that. It just happened. Just one person after another just was showing up right in front of him, just delivering more and more bad news. And in that moment... Rather than cursing God and being angry, he did the exact opposite. He worshipped. And here's what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we just sang about this. Like Some of you probably thought those are just cool song lyrics. No, that's from the story of Job. As a result of Job continuing to praise God in a difficult time, God ends up just pouring out his blessings on him at the end of the story. So if I can give you just a quick spoiler alert, right? Like if you are one of those people that's going to go home and read the story of Job today. When you get to the last chapter, let me just go ahead and tell you how it ends. It ends with, with God just pouring out his blessings. And Job ends up getting twice as much as he had before as a result of his faithfulness to God. So believers, even though God is sovereign over all things... Please remember that you are still responsible for your actions. But with that being said, still just be encouraged that you serve a huge, huge God that is completely sovereign. And listen, let's be honest for a minute. God's sovereignty would be a terrible, terrible thing if God were not a good God. If God was evil, this would be a terrible thing. But God is good, and God loves you. And God cares for you. And God wants what's best for you. And as a result of that, we can rejoice that our God is sovereign. We can take comfort in the fact that our God is sovereign. So to the unbelievers in the room today, everything I've said today still applies to you. There's nothing I've said that, was, that still doesn't somehow relate to your life. God is sovereign over all things, including your life. Somebody's probably never told you that before, and you might choose to not believe it. It doesn't change the fact that that's what Scripture confirms. That's what Scripture explains. And I'm just going to take a guess, and I'm just going to gamble on this right here. I'm going to bet that, that the people who were alive during Jesus' time didn't know that they were being used to fulfill God's purposes either. God was still in control. But if God is sovereign over all things, then that means that you're not here today by accident. That means that you're here today, and God knew about it, and God ordained it. And listen, he might be tugging at your heart right now, encouraging you to turn from your sins, to repent, and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And listen, if that's you, we're about to have an opportunity where the musicians are going to come up and lead us in a few more songs. If that's you, please find me after the service. Find one of our other pastors. I would love the opportunity to talk with you more 
about what it means for you to be a follower of Christ and to be forgiven of your sins. So listen, the, music, the musicians are going to come up and lead us in a few more songs. Uh, let's just go ahead and stand at this point. Let's make sure that we take advantage of this opportunity to give God the glory and the honor and the praise that, that, is, that He is worth and that is owed to Him. Let's stand and sing.